0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So, listen and subscribe to This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, The Corpse Bride. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day and for today's question of the day i thought i'd ask you about rich people something that i probably never ever will be Uh, and my question for you today is who is considered to be the first millionaire ever in the united states and here's the list in alphabetical order and i should tell you that all these people were in fact millionaires so who was the first was it one john jacob astor Two, elias haskett derby three, William Leidesdorf, four, Pierre Lorillard II, or five, Sarah Breedlove Walker. Again, who was the first millionaire ever in the United States? Was it one, John Jacob Astor, two, Elias Haskett Derby, three, William Leidesdorf, four, Pierre Lorillard II, or five, Sarah Breedlove Walker? And as always, I'll leave you to think about these various fortunes, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled, The Corpse Bride. And before I start, I feel that I should mention that this is a fairly well-known story, you know, at least in comparison to the other stories that I typically tell. But I have to tell you that no one I know uh, seems to have heard it before, but in case you have, uh, I hope I can shed some new light on the story. And our story begins back in 1926, and that's when a 50-year-old man named Carl Tanzler sailed from Germany to his new home in the United States. And somewhere along this journey, George Carl Tanzler metamorphosed into Count Karl von Kosel, uh, and that's a title he claimed to have been born with. Now, whether he was a descendant of nobility or not—and my guess is probably not—his destination was not some grand castle or grand estate. Instead, he was headed for his sister's farm in Zephyrhills, Florida. It's important to the story that I mention that Carl, in fact, was a married man. He left his wife Doris and his two daughters behind in Dresden, and they eventually followed him to the U.S., but the reunion was incredibly brief. Uh, The lives of Carl and Doris would collide again years later, but they were never ever to live under the same roof again. Now, upon entering the United States, Carl obtained a job at the Marine Hospital in Key West, and he was initially hired as part of the custodial staff, but somehow he quickly moved into position as an x-ray radiologist and a pathologist. Now, you're probably wondering what made him qualified to do these jobs. Well, the answer is nobody knows for sure. Basically, his biography prior to coming to the United States is one big mishmash of half-truths and lies. He claimed to have graduated from the University of Leipzig with nine different degrees and to have mastered the English language while living in Australia. He introduced himself to others as a medical doctor, but he clearly was not. While the Marine Hospital was a military operation, it was the only hospital in the region and, as a result, it also provided health care to the general public. And this is where Kosel met the girl of his dreams. She was a young woman named Elena Milagro Hoyos Mesa, who had recently suffered a miscarriage and whose health seemed to be slipping away. So Elena's family took her to the hospital to undergo some tests, and the count was called in to take a blood test, and he was immediately and forever cast under her spell. In the Count's eyes Elena was the perfect woman and it didn't matter that both Elena and he were married to others at the time. The suspected cause of Elena's illness was tuberculosis, which was incurable at the time and soon confirmed by the tests done by the Count. While it was certain that she would soon succumb to the effects of the disease, Count von Kosel was determined to save her life using every resource available to him. Her treatments were basically shock therapy, you know, sending extremely high voltages surging through Elena's body. Now keep in mind that this is a time when X-rays, electricity, radiation, and so on were you know they were relatively new and the so called experts, if you know what I mean, claimed that these new technologies could cure just about anything. All the while Elena slept in a beautiful mahogany bed that Von Kosel had purchased for her. It didn't take long before Elena's parents became suspicious of the Count's actions and they stopped bringing her to the hospital for treatment. So he figured if they couldn't bring Elena to the hospital, he would bring the hospital to her. And initially, they forbid him from doing so, but as Elena's health deteriorated, her family, you know, being quite poor, they became desperate and ultimately had to accept the Count's offer of free medical service. The Count claimed that as she neared death, Elena, with her husband long gone and out of the picture, agreed to marry him. In return, the Count assured Elena that he would always take care of her, even if her spirit was taken from this earth. On each visit, the Count showered her with gifts of affection, and that included fresh flowers, fruit, jewelry, silk dresses, and stockings, and so on. But he continued to treat her with these bolts of high-voltage electricity, and then he added radiation treatments that lasted up to a half an hour in length. It just does not sound like fun to me. Now get this part, the Count had an old wreck of an airplane sitting on the grounds of the Marine Hospital, and he christened it the Contessa Elena. Now it had no wings, so it wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. But in his mind, he planned to fix it up so they could fly off together into the heavens. As was expected, Elena died on October 25th of 1931. She was just 22 years of age. And in death, the Count still continued to take care of his beloved Elena. He picked up the tab for her beautiful casket, which was lowered into the ground the very next day. He visited her at the cemetery every single day and grew increasingly concerned that the groundwater would destroy her heavenly body. And the Count knew exactly what to do about this problem. He purchased the cemetery plot adjacent to her existing plot, had her body removed from the ground, and arranged for a crypt to be built on that very spot. The construction took three months, at which time Elena was transferred to a new casket, and the Count was appalled by the amount of decay that Elena's body had endured while it was buried in the ground so he attempted to treat her body by placing it in a homemade incubator tank. And this was the point where his affection turned into a morose obsession. The Count continued to visit her tomb every night for the next 18 months, sitting in a chair next to her coffin. But this concrete prison was just not good enough for his dear Elena. He just had to get her out of there, So one dark night, he loaded her casket onto a small wagon, trucked her out of the cemetery, and ultimately placed her inside the cabin of his so-called airplane. Once there, he took her body out of the casket and was disheartened by what he saw. The 18 months in the coffin had done quite a number on her body. He realized that he needed to save Elena from further decay. And the first thing he did was try to peel the clothing from her skin, which had become somewhat fused together. He painstakingly cleaned and tried to preserve her the best way that he could. As I'm sure you know, decaying bodies stink big time. He even had a solution for this. Lots and lots of cologne. (laughs) Anyway, uh, he said that what bothered him the most was her lack of eyes. So he replaced them with two dark brown glass models. He truly believed that he could reactivate Elena's inner cells with various treatments of x-rays, electrolysis, and some homespun chemistry in an effort to bring her back to life. Of course, we all know that this is an impossibility, but the Count was certain that he could do so. As the body continued to decay, he replaced rotted portions with bits of beeswax, wire, and paper mache. So obsessed was he with Elena that he totally ignored his real wife and children, which included skipping out on his daughter Crystal's funeral. Ultimately, he was forced to remove the plane from the hospital's grounds. So the Count found a new place on Rest Beach, which was basically you know, a run-down shack, and he hired a truck to move the airplane and all his possessions. Elena's brother-in-law, Mario Medina, helped with the movement of the plane, but he had no knowledge of the dark secret that it contained within its hull. The Count spent two years with her body at Rest Beach until he was forced to move once again. He found another wooden shack on Flagler Avenue that suited his needs, and all his possessions, including Elena and the airplane, were packed up and hauled to this new location. Then the rumors started to spread, and they ultimately reached Elena's sister, Nana. The magical world that the Count created for Elena all came crashing down on September 28th of 1940. That's when Nana took the Count to Elena's mausoleum and requested that he open the coffin. And he refused. He knew full well that he'd removed the inner casket and the body a long time ago. Keep in mind this is nine years after she had died. A few days later, on October 1st, the count once again was dragged to the cemetery and once again he outright refused to let Nana see Elena's body. But finally, the count gave in and offered to let her see Elena. So he took her to his house and showed Nana just how comfortably Elena had been resting in her bed for the past seven years. As you'd expect, Nana freaked out when she saw the body and she just stormed out of there. On October 5th, the count was arrested for possession of a dead body. Elena's body was hauled off to the funeral home, her third visit there. Honestly, I only want to go once. (laughs) Anyway, uh, the count was charged with, quote, wanton and maliciously demolishing, disfiguring, and destroying a grave. And that's the end of the quote. As you could probably guess, the story was just one big media circus. The readers just couldn't get enough of the story. The funeral home put Elena's body on display for public viewing, something I find amazing, uh, during which 6,850 people decided to take a peek. Now, just how creeped out were most of the people by this news? Surprisingly, they weren't at all. In fact, most people, particularly women, thought that it was an incredibly romantic thing uh, that the Count had done. A hearing on the case began on October 8th of 1940. First, there was a testimony from Elena's sister Nana, during which she said that there had been rumors flying around that the body may no longer be where it was supposed to be. She described how she confronted the count and how he took her to see the body. And then the count took the stand and told of how Elena's body had been mistreated by all those involved with the burial and so on, and how he supposedly had get this resurrected her. He underwent a lengthy psychological examination and was ruled sane and ordered to stand trial for his actions. Two men, Benjamin Fernandez and Joseph Zorsky, both business owners from uh, Key West, put up one thousand dollars bond to get him out of the lockup. Amazingly, the Count did not know either of these men. Ultimately, the Count was cleared of all charges. That's because he had taken the body from the grave seven years earlier, and the statute of limitations for robbing a grave was then two years. While he may have committed a crime back then, there was nothing in the law to charge him with now. Here's another surprising thing. Elena's jewelry was returned to the Count. Since they were all gifts given to her after she died, Elena was not in a position to accept and say thank you. As a result, the court ruled that they still belonged to the Count. Which brings us to the end of the story, and in doing so I must tell you what happened to our two main characters. First is Elena. Her body was basically just bones held together with wire and wax, so it was dismembered and placed into an 18-inch, that's what, about a half a meter length casket, and buried in a secret location. Only three men, then-Police Chief Benavide uh, Perez, Undertaker Benjamin Sawyer, and Key West Cemetery Sexton Otto Bethel were present at the burial, and they all swore never ever to reveal its location. All that is known, based on a statement by Police Chief Perez you know, after the other two men had passed on, was that it was somewhere in the Key West Cemetery. As for Count Von Kosel, at first he made money by charging a $0.25 admission to the curious to you know, get a tour of his home. But ultimately, the notoriety of the case forced him to leave Key West. His destination was originally where it was originally Zephyr Hills, Florida, where his sister, wife, and remaining children lived. For 200 bucks he hired 3 large trucks, and they were loaded with all his stuff including that airplane fuselage and Elena's former casket. Then at 9 p.m. on April 14th, 1941, the convoy hit the road. 4 hours later there was a the powerful sound of an explosion at the cemetery. It was the demolition of elena's tomb while it has long been supposed that the count blew it up with dynamite there was never enough proof to charge him with the crime for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. During World War II, the Germans living in the United States were placed under surveillance by the government, and the count was no exception. They ordered him to take the wheels off of his so-called plane, not that it was going anywhere in the first place. In 1944, the count moved to a new home in Pasco County, Florida, which then brings us to July of 1952, and that's when a neighbor named George Patterson noticed the mail piling up on the count's front porch. He called the local sheriff to investigate, and upon entering the house, they found the count's badly decomposed body lying on the floor near the front door. The exact date of death was never determined, but not far from his body, they found a wax replica of Elena's body and her head. Yes, his obsession with Elena lasted until his very last breath. I have skipped the one question that people always ask me when I tell this story. That is, did he do the so-called, you know, horizontal bop with her corpse? While it was maintained by the prosecutors at the time of his arrest that he had not done so, it was revealed in 1972, and that's during an interview with one of the doctors that performed the autopsy on Elena, that there was clear evidence that he had done so. In an effort to keep this podcast clean, I will leave out the more sordid details of what they found. You can check those out online. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. The Signal Carnival, presented by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline, the gasoline that does make your motoring dollars go farther. The signal light is green, and Signal gasoline is bringing you music to slide. All fifty drivers know the light is show. The highway to happier minds You can leave your troubles behind If you let each gold signal refine The signal gas in your car Will make your dollars go far friends, this is Johnny Fraser welcoming you to another Signal Oil Company Sunday Night Carnival of fun and music, starring Miss Vera Vague, Jack Carson, Kay St. Germain, the Signal and Gordon Jenkins and the orchestra. That commercial for Signal Gasoline is from the February 9th, 1941 broadcast of the Signal Carnival Show. The show was originally called the Carefree Carnival, but the name was changed in 1937 when Signal took over the sponsorship. It claimed to be the, quote, West's most popular musical variety program. Signal was founded by a guy named Sam Mosher, who was a grower of avocados, oranges, and lemons. You're probably wondering, how did this guy end up in the oil business? Well, it turns out he lost his crops in a terrible freeze, so Sam was drawn to a recent big discovery of oil at Signal Hill in California, hence the name. He became fascinated by the natural gas that was being burned off the top of the wells. and With a $4,000 investment, Sam started the Signal Gasoline Company to harvest this gas. The company entered into oil production in 1928 and changed its name to Signal Oil & Gas. They got out of the oil business shortly after its 1968 merger with the Garrett Corporation, which was a Los Angeles-based aerospace company. In 1985, Signal merged with Allied to become Allied Signal, uh, which was then acquired by Honeywell in 1999. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. And today's tidbits all have a common theme. They were all gooey messes. And other than that, really, they have nothing else in common. Our first story is dated November 25th, that's Thanksgiving Day, of 1943. Was reported that a dike in a waste depository at the Solway Soda Ash Plant in Syracuse, New York gave way. An estimated 25,000 cubic feet of white marshmallow-like sludge just poured out over an area of about two square miles. Luckily, no one was injured but a portion of the New York State fairgrounds, seven homes, a hotel, and a road were buried in up to eight feet of the stuff. Uh, 52 people were left homeless, and 20 rescuers were treated for chemical burns that were produced by the reactions with the calcium carbonate-slash-magnesia-slash-calcium chloride-slash-salt-brine mixture. Wow, that was a mouthful. Anyway, cleanup of the 40,000 tons of industrial waste was incredibly difficult, and that's because the stuff wasn't solid. It was more like a lava-like mush. Efforts were made to add truckloads of cinders and other materials to help make it easier to move the stuff aside using snow plows and other heavy-duty excavating equipment. As you'd expect, the chemical plant is long gone, but the mess that it left behind is still one big problem. The Solway plant was built along the shores of the Onondaga, which was once a beautiful lake that attracted tourists from all around the world. But it was also the perfect location for this plant, and that's because salt water was obtained from nearby springs, the region's limestone bedrock provided a cheap, steady source of calcium carbonate, and of course, the lake provided for an easy place to dispose of the waste. By the time of this disaster in 1943, the lake had become polluted, eventually being classified as one of the most polluted lakes in the United States. Cleanup continues today, but the scars left on the land are still readily available in their aerial photographs that you can check out on Google Maps. Our next story, is dated March 22, 1949, was reported that a fight erupted over a lollipop on the Crosstown Trolley in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania the previous day. It seems that three-year-old John Washington Talbert was chewing on a lollipop while sitting next to five-year-old Albert Maine and his 30-year-old mother, Caroline Maine. Young John Sucker rubbed up against Mrs. Maine's coat and became stuck to her son, Albert. And here's where it gets good. Mrs. Maine complained to the three-year-old's mom, 20-year-old Lois Talbert. Harsh words were exchanged, and then a fight erupted between the two moms. First, Mrs. Talbert, the mother of the three-year-old lollipop criminal, kicked Mrs. Maine. So Mrs. Maine then turned and hit Mrs. Talbert in the mouth. Next thing you know, the trolley comes to a stop, and the two moms are arrested. The magistrate made Mrs. Tauber pay a $10 fine for all of the damage that the lollipop caused. She was also found guilty of disorderly conduct. Now, the victim of the lollipop attack, Mrs. Main, was released. And clearly, we all know where this story is headed. First, three-year-old John is assaulting people with lollipops. Next thing you know, he's robbing banks. And our last story for today took place in Boston, Massachusetts on June 28th, of 1954. It seems that a four-year-old named John Sullivan fell into a tar pit that was left behind by a construction crew. The pit measured about eight feet or about two and a half meters in diameter by five feet or one and a half meters in depth. This is not a place that anyone wants to be. Naturally, his seven-year-old brother Francis jumped in to save the younger John. So now we have two kids stuck in the gooey mess. Then their mom, Geraldine, heard the screams, and in a panic, she jumped in to save her two sons. Now we have three in there. Then a passerby named Herbert Foreman jumped in to rescue the seven-year-old Francis. There's four people. And around the same time, a policeman named Louis Spina jumped in to save the mom and the four-year-old that started the whole mess in the first place. Now that really is one big sticky mess. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked you who was the first millionaire in the United States, and your choices were 1 John Jacob Astor, 2 Elias Haskett Derby, 3 William Leidesdorf, 4 Pierre the II, or 5 Sarah Breedlove Walker. Now before I give you the answer, I should mention that there is some controversy over this answer, since it's very difficult to estimate the value of someone's fortune from so long ago but I will give you the answer that is most frequently given by experts. First, let me tell you that it's not Sarah Breedlove Walker, and that's because she's the most recent of all those on the list. I mentioned her because she is considered to be the first woman to become a millionaire by her own achievements. She earned it by inventing a hair straightening process for African Americans and marketing the C.J. Walker beauty and hair product line. She became a millionaire in 1914 at the age of 47. It was also not Pierre Lurillard II who earned his fortune in tobacco. He holds the honor of being the first person ever to be referred to as a millionaire in the press. His obituary in 1843 mentioned the millionaire term for the first time ever, but he was not the first or the richest man in the U.S. at the time of his death. The richest man at the time Lorelei died was John Jacob Astor, who was unquestionably the first multimillionaire in the United States. His estate was estimated at $20 million at the time of his death in 1848. But again, he was not the first millionaire. Nor was it William Leidesdorf, who died at age 38 in 1848. His estate was estimated to be worth a mere $50,000 at the time of his death, But by the time his estate was auctioned off in 1856, the discovery of gold on his ranch had escalated the value to $1,445,000. In other words, he became a millionaire after he died. And that leaves us with just one choice from my list. That's Elias Haskett Derby. And he was from Salem, Massachusetts and lived from 1739 to 1799. He made his fortune with the ownership of a fleet of vessels that conducted trade with the West Indies and the Southern Atlantic. Now, His real claim to fame was being the first New England merchant to establish trade with China. As I mentioned, there were several others that could be considered the first U.S. millionaire, so don't get mad at me if you, you, know, you think the answer is someone else. There were obviously many kings, queens, and dictators that could have been worth a lot more at the time, which is why I limited the question to the United States only. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on The Corpse Bride, as well as our question of the day regarding the United States' first millionaire, listening to our retro sponsor, Signal Gasoline, and of course, the news of the weird past gooey tidbits. I should tell you, I started recording this podcast more than a week ago, but I had to keep stopping because my voice kept giving out. I uh, got a cold right before Christmas, and the effects have just been going on and on. In fact, today is the first day that I actually feel almost myself. Um, But I do apologize if you can hear my voice straining at various parts through this. Anyway, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. Additional resources, including the scans of some of the original research documents, additional comments that I have on the podcast, and related links can be found on my Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash uselessinformationpodcast. That's all one word, Useless Information Podcast. Now, for those who have been following me on Facebook, you probably heard that I had my one millionth download when I posted the last episode. I'm really shocked uh, that I had so many. Anyway, I also want to thank the people who sent me uh, all the uh, emails and postings on Facebook about how much they like the podcast. It's kind of, uh, I always describe recording this as just talking to a wall, and it was kind of nice to get a little bit of feedback uh, from some people. It was very nice and appreciated. Uh, Now, for some reason you'd like to contact me and simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name, that's useless at steve.silverman.name, or you can visit my website at uselessinformation.org. Someone did tell me the uh, link uh, for the email is broken there, so don't use that one. Um, But you should be able to get me at useless at steve.silverman.name. Anyway uh, of course the Facebook page also contains uh, a link to contact me. Anyways, I thank everybody for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.